I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I can well imagine that uh, at one point in your life you've said, or at least you've thought, life is not fair. That... um, There's been frustration over things not going your way. You've been mistreated. Um, You have uh, maybe done something nice for somebody and you haven't received the applause that you felt you deserved. Um, This kind of uh, frustration and anger has come over you in terms of uh, of this mistreatment. And you struggled with with feeling justified in your anger. You know, you can even say, I deserve to be angry. You know, this is what happened to me. This is what they said to me. This is what they did to me. And so you kind of just wallow in bitterness and resentment and frustration because of someone's mistreatment of you. What do you do in a case like that? Do you you remain there? I mean, do you you justify yourself and say, you know, I don't need to forgive them. I mean, this is what they've done to me repeatedly. Well, Well, you know, Peter seeks to answer the question, How do we handle being mistreated? How do we handle unfairness? How do we handle situations uh, perhaps someone spoke harshly about you and you had done nothing wrong? Well, well, he's going to give us the answer to that. Uh, But but I want to remind you where we are in this precious book. You know, Peter begins the whole book with calling us to praise God. He calls us to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why, he tells us, he he says, because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I I want you to to think, he's caused you and I, the Christian, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So all those who claim the name of Christ, you have a living hope. You have an eternal inheritance. God has promised that he's going to assure that you enjoy him in fullness. That's why we praise God. But that is also what makes us aliens and strangers. It makes us different. We're no longer citizens of this world. We're citizens of God, the kingdom of God. And then if you remember, when Peter leaves that first section in the first chapter, then he goes, if you have been born again to a living hope, well, then you're going to react to God differently. You're going to conduct yourselves in fear. You're going to be holy as he is holy. You're going to set your mind on things above. And and not only are you going to respond to God differently, we're going to respond to each other differently. If we're aliens and strangers, 
If we have the eternal promise of God, then we love each other earnestly. And we long to grow up together in salvation. I mean, that's what we do. Because we're, we're together, strangers and aliens in this world. And then Peter moves, after the first few verses of chapter 2, he moves right to this idea of, you ha- you're living stones now. He returns to this idea, you have a new identity. And that's when he says those famous words, that you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's what you are. And if that's the way you are, he says, abstain from the sinful passions of the flesh. And he says, he says conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they speak evil of you, they may see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of visitation. In other words, what Peter's saying is, you've been born again. So you respond to God differently. You respond to people differently. In the church, you respond to the world differently. And here's how you respond to the world. Last week, you heard Levy explain about how we respond within our civic responsibilities. This is what honorable life looks like before the government. You submit. You obey. Well, here, Peter is going to be speaking about how we respond to those who have hurt us, who've wounded us, who have spoken evil against us who have treated us unjustly. How do we respond to them? He moves to these household rules. Next week, we're going to speak about the woman and the man. But this week, about these relationships. They may be authoritarian in nature. Maybe in the military or in, or in a student-teacher relationship. Or maybe relationships you have in the home, parent to child. Maybe it's just other relationships you have. But you've been treated poorly. You've been mistreated. So what do you do? Well, Peter's going to look at, he's going to give us two things to consider today. First would be a call to endure graciously, a gracious endurance. There's a call. You'll see that in verses 18 through 20. We are to graciously endure mistreatment. Now, I know that's a tall order because in 21 to 25, he's going to give us motivation as to how we can endure graciously. So first he calls us to do it. He says, this is what you need to do. And then he explains how we can do it. I'm very thankful for that. So first, this call to gracious endurance. Look at how he begins. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Now, right away, you should be shocked at such writing. Who writes to servants? Half the servants couldn't read. But Peter is elevating them. He's writing to the servants. He's saying, you are to be submissive to your masters. Now, it also reminds us that the early church was filled with slaves and servants and common workers. I mean, the bulk of the early church were not from the academic or from the educated or the intelligent. They were, they were those of the servant class. Now, I, I want to want to raise up because most of us when we see a line like this slaves be subject to your masters you know our mind goes right to american history and our treatment of the slaves in this country and i want you to realize that that there is a bit of a difference somewhat of a difference between the slaves of u.s history and the slaves that peter would be speaking about And, and the difference really turns on two things number one permanence Permanence, in Peter's day, uh, a slave could buy his freedom. He could work for his freedom. Uh, That it wasn't a permanent, it didn't have to be a permanent status. Here, of course, in the slavery of the 19th century, 
uh, it was permanent. You know, it was generation to generation. Uh, another difference would be in the uh, racial underpinning of our racism, of our slavery here in this country. Uh, in Peter's day, it wasn't a racist issue. Slaves or servants were part of a class. It was an economic position. Uh, it was driven by economics and politics. It was driven by, um, it was a social class. You could have servants that had servants, actually. They were doctors, they were lawyers, they were shipbuilders, they were farmers. Uh, they made up probably 25 to 40 percent of the population. As many, as many as 60 million people uh, in this area would be of the servitude class. Now, I don't want to paint an erroneous picture. A servant is still a servant, a slave is still a slave. They were still owned by another person. And if the master was harsh, it was a horrible thing. Uh, but I just want you to realize that there are some differences between the two. Now, people raise the question, why doesn't Peter condemn it? Uh, why doesn't he come against this sort of uh, this, this slavery? Well, remember, Peter is not writing to reform social structures in society. Uh, he is writing to inform the Christian exile that these Christian servants were beginning to think, hey, if I'm free in Christ, I don't need to endure. I don't need to put up with this, this servitude anymore. And he's trying to say, no, 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 you're an exile. You're a citizen of heaven. But while you're on this earth, that you are to be submissive to your masters with all respect. And, and Peter knew that it would be in the transforming of the people that would ultimately transform the culture, which would ultimately redo the social structures. Because just redoing social structures doesn't change the darkness that is within every soul in this room. And so he's writing to these servants and he's saying, being submissive to all of them, the good and the gentle, but also the harsh, the unjust. That's our word for crooked, those that perhaps took advantage of you that you've been mistreated. He says, just endure graciously. Now, I want to expand this a little bit. We don't have slaves and masters in this land. And, and, and I, think it, I think it meant more than just slaves and masters. I, I think it, many people want to take it into the workplace, that this is, this is kind of the modern parlance would be the employer and the employee. And I think that's a legitimate extension of this text. But look in verse 19, because you kind of see a clue to why Peter's giving a principle and not just specific rules for slaves and masters. He says in 19, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. One. So Peter makes a general there. He doesn't continue the theme strictly slaves and masters. He says anyone who suffers endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So we think he's speaking to perhaps some of you wives. Or perhaps you're in a business relationship where you're being mistreated. Or perhaps you're in a student-teacher relationship. It can be a lot of different relationships where you are enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly. And what he says is, it's a pleasing thing when you endure. Not justify your anger. Not respond with harsh criticism back when you're silent and you endure. It's a gracious thing to God. He finds it commendable. He finds it actually something that he would credit you with. Notice in verse 20, not all sorrows and not all suffering get this. In verse 20, he says, what credit is it if when you suffer, you've done it for sin? 
In other words, if you're, under, if you're kind of feeling low because your boss has been mistreating you or you feel like he's been harsh, but you come to work late every day, your work is shoddy, you're disobedient at work, you know, he's not speaking about our sins that bring upon us harsh treatment and the suffering. You know, Peter even says this in chapter 3 and 4 later in the same book. He said it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. He says in chapter 4, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You know, there is much suffering that we experience due to our own sin, due to our own rashness, our own harshness, our own quick temper, our bitterness. And we bring much suffering into our life because of our behavior. He's not speaking about that. He's saying the suffering, the endurance graciously of suffering is when we're doing the right thing. When we're not going to the the drinking party after work. When we're not laughing at the joke that that throws women under the bus. When we're not participating in that sort of thing. And we begin to get the moniker, oh, he's he's a Christian. You know, it's the suffering for doing the right thing. And some of our suffering, it may, be, it may be active. People malign you, they gossip about you, they make fun of you behind your back. It may be passive. It may be you're overlooked for a job or you're ignored or you're held with disdain. But he's talking here about the suffering that we experience while conducting ourselves as aliens and strangers, while conducting ourselves honorable. And he says it's commendable. It's gracious. It's a good thing in God's eyes when you endure patiently, when you endure graciously. Now, I want to be sure and be clear here. Uh, This endurance of injustice is not ignoring sin. I'm not ignoring sin. If someone is suffering, someone that is um, unable to protect themselves, you know, that we have the right to stand up and move for their justice. If you're, if you're able, if you're suffering and you're able to remove yourself from a situation to avoid or to escape from the suffering, then we should do that. Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs was a pastor of the um, 18th century. He, said, he says, use all lawful means to remove yourself from a trial. Or if you're suffering unjustly and you have a way of recourse that you can speak to the person or, or reset the situation where you can avoid suffering, that's great. What I think Peter's talking about here is the personal injustice. Kind of along the lines of when Jesus said to turn the other cheek. If he hits you on the right side, then turn your left side to him. In other words, it's leaving a place for the government to bring about correction for injustices He's simply saying, don't you exact personal retaliation against personal injustices. So if you've done a good job, you've worked hard, and you've been ignored, that you don't respond in like measure. Uh, That if you've tried to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, and you're being mocked, do not mock in return. I think that's what he's saying here. It's non-retaliation to personal injustices over behavior that would be godly. So he's saying... Endure graciously. Now think about yourselves for just a minute. When you are treated unfairly, unjustly, what has been your typical response? Has it been to lash out? Has it been to cuss a blue streak? Has it been to kind of bide your time and wait like a snake in hiding? What has your response been? 
Uh, do you just kind of grind your teeth, hoping against hope that they get their due? That would be contrary to what Peter's saying. This is why the faith is so radical. Who does this? Only people who know they have a citizenship somewhere else and not here. This is totally radical stuff. This does not sell well. If you're looking to market Christianity, you would not want to speak from this, from this verse because I'm calling you to graciously endure. Why? Because it's so otherworldly. I'm asking you to endure graciously for innocent suffering, for doing the right thing, not for doing the wrong. If you do the wrong thing, repent, confess, seek to make amends to the best that you can. But you're to graciously endure suffering innocently. But it also seems to remind us that we're to suffer in the fear of God. Notice in verse 18 there, he says, he says, be subject with all respect. That word respect is the Greek word for fear, that we're called to fear. Not white-knuckled obedience, not waiting for them to get their due, but we're to fear. But here's the, here's the key. We're not to fear the master. We're not to fear the one who is mistreating you. We are called to fear God. You know, Jesus said himself, he said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Don't fear him. Now, listen, it was natural to fear somebody who has threatened your life. But he says, don't do it. Because every day that has been appointed to you was known to me before one came to be. And not one will be removed prior to the time I have set. And Jesus says, fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. Or in Isaiah, he makes it very clear. He says, but the Lord of hosts, him you should honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And listen to what he says. And he will become a sanctuary. You see what he's doing here? He's saying, let him be your dread. And you will be in a place of peace. You let him be your fear. He'll be a sanctuary. He'll be a place of safety for you. Why? Because he's sovereign over all the relationships all the other authoritarian relationships in your life, he's sovereign over all those things. And so you can endure graciously, fearing him, not fearing them. And then notice also, he wants us to endure graciously, mindful of God. You see that in 19. The word mindful of God, this idea is to be conscious of God. It, it means to live in the sight of God, that, that God sees the harsh word that your spouse may give to you and that you want to return in like measure. But you stay silent. God sees that. It's in the sight of God. When someone overlooks you for a job because you're really trying to work with integrity and you're not, you're not playing as everybody else plays the game, you're not the political animal in the office that maybe some, other do better, some others do better than you, God sees that. This is all in the sight of God. Be mindful of God. Keep in your mind, God is there. He writes down all these things, doesn't he? This is Psalm 56, 8. I love this. He says, you have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? Does God not see everything? So when a spouse responds with harshness and you don't respond, God notes that. That's known to him. When the person ridicules you or you hear that someone said this about you and you don't respond, well, let me tell you, know, you've got plenty of data to balance the scales, but you don't exercise that. And you just... You just zip it up. God notes that. God knows every injustice in every home, in the workplace, in the relationships. I want you to know, he says, you can endure graciously because God sees it all. 
And none of it will be forgotten. It'll all be reconciled. And that is to keep us so that we can respond graciously. Now, so, so we, that's what he calls us. He calls us, the, the whole theme of kind of 18 to 20 is endure graciously the injustices that may come into your life. But of course, that's a very tall order, isn't it? It's very, very hard to do. So he tells us, he encourages us with a couple motivations. Here's what he says. Look in, look in 21. He says, for to this you've been called. Take note of this, would you? That in verse chapter 1, verse 2, he says that you've been called according to the foreknowledge of God, but you're also called to suffer. And interesting, Philippians 1, 29, Paul says the same thing. He says, it's been granted to you to believe and to suffer. Have you thought of suffering as something that God has called you to? Or is it simply something that we avoid at all costs? No matter what, I'm going to avoid this. I'm going to steer away from this. But he's called us to suffer. He's called us to. Why? Well, to be a display of his glory, I think. To reveal his great worth among the Gentiles of this world. But the motivation he gives here, you see it in 21 where he says, to this you've been called for Christ suffered for us. So the first reason or the first explanation, the first motivation for us to graciously endure suffering is that he suffered for us. He turns right to the vicarious substitutionary nature of Jesus Christ suffering for us. He suffered in our place. You see the detail that he gives of his suffering in 24 and 25. In 24 and 25, you see when he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It says, and by his wounds you have been healed. So in other words, we can endure graciously injustices to us. Why? Well, because the huge, long, filthy laundry list of your sins that you have committed, that you've thought to commit, if you could have committed, all those things were put on his body. He bore them in his body and they were crucified on the tree. So he suffered for us. It's, it's to draw us right to the cross. He suffered the injustice of bearing our sin and bearing the wrath of God for that sin. That by his wounds we've been healed, the scourging, the nails, the thorns, pulling of the beard, the slapping of the face, the spitting in the face, the spear in the side. Hang up all those wounds. By, those, by him bearing those wounds, you have been healed. You have been forgiven. You've been reconciled to God. I mean, we who are morally unable to reconcile ourselves to God, this is the gospel, friends, that, that we are unable. He has done for us what we could never do. And it's out of this great act of love, as we think about that, dwell upon that, that we can endure injustice for his glory. He has done this. He's taken wandering sheep. He's drawing all this language from Isaiah 53. He's really giving us this Christological understanding of suffering. He says, though we were like straying like sheep, he has brought us back to the shepherd of our souls. He's the overseer of our souls. He's the head elder, is what he is. You know, this is the difference with Christianity. I want to make sure we know, particularly if you're not a Christian here, all religions of the world will say that if you endure graciously, God will vindicate you. If you serve him righteously, then God will love you. Christianity is different. We say this, 
that no, we can endure unrighteousness because he loved us. We can endure graciously mistreatment because he has already vindicated us. It's not our obedience that secures divine love. It's divine love that has come to us that fuels our obedience. You see this kind of analogy in Matthew 18. You know, Matthew 18 is that story, for those of you who don't know, it's a story Jesus is talking about forgiveness. And he brings up this parable about a king who had these servants, and these servants had debt to him. One in particular had a massive debt, never could have repaid it. And so the king is calling his servants to collect his rightful debt. Well, this servant, who could never pay it back, said, I, he just pleaded mercy. He, Please have mercy on me. And the king forgives him, forgives all of his debt. He's done nothing, can do nothing, and just unilaterally, the king moves with mercy and grace and forgives the servant. Well, the servant then goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him a very small pittance of money. And he demands his money. And he says, I'm going to put you in jail until you pay back the debt. Well, of course, the story gets back to the king. The king calls the servant back and said, I've forgiven all your debt. You couldn't forgive that man. And then he's, of course, punished for that. But here's the point, that it was the forgiveness that the servant first received from God that enabled him to be able to forgive others. And it's the mistreatment that Jesus has borne for us that enables us. The gospel energizes behavior through the power of the Spirit. So I don't know who has mistreated you. I don't know in what situation you stand right now, where perhaps you've been slandered, that your spouse has been unfair in his assessment of your intentions or your actions. I don't know if it's a workplace situation where you continue to get passed over. You're not in the in-group because you don't do what the in-group does. Look to Christ. I mean, look to the gospel. Find your power, not in renewed enthusiasm to do it right. Forget that. Look to the gospel and ask that the Spirit of God would fill you with a power uh, that is able to graciously endure for the glory of God. So that's the first reason he gives. The second reason, you see it following, he says this in 21, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. And then he says, leaving you an example so you might follow in his steps. In other words, the second reason is we're to walk after Jesus. This is an example he set. We are to endure graciously mistreatment and injustices because he has set the pattern. You know, when you're um, when the kids were younger and we walked through some deep snow, I would walk through the snow and they'd walk through the footprints behind that I left so that they wouldn't get their, their, their legs all wet on the snow. Or, or, or think about when I was a student and, and we learned, we had a class penmanship. I know they don't teach that anymore. In fact, I know how to cursive, which I don't think half the world knows how to. But, but they would teach you how to draw a letter by they would put a letter on a piece of paper, put a thinner piece of paper over top of it, you'd trace the letter to learn how to form. That's what all he's saying. Follow in his footsteps. You know, look at what Jesus did. In 22, he says, when he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He didn't respond in like measure. He did not retaliate. He responded with grace. He responded with kindness. Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. 
He, he entrusted himself. It literally means he handed the whole issue over to God and said, you know what, you judge justly. I'm leaving it in your hands. I'm not going to exact revenge. I'm not going to exact reta- retaliation. God, I'm going to let you do it. What a statement of faith. I don't have to defend myself. God will take care of that in his way and in his time, and it will be far more perfect than me. So again, think through what happens when you feel you've been mistreated, when your name has been maligned, when you have been made fun of, when you have lost out on something, when you've done something good that people have failed to appreciate, when your spouse has just really just dropped a bomb on you, said something harsh or cruel, or a friend has. Your first response is, let's balance the scales. Now, the Christian faith is a radical faith. It means, no, you, we remain silent. You remain silent, or, or you return good. You do good to those who have done poor to you. That, that, that's the call that you entrusted, that when you are faced with that, you say, I'm going to give it to God. You may have to give it to God 50,000 times in a day, but you continue to hand it over to him, you hand, as opposed to responding in retaliation. Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. This is again why the faith is so it's so nonconformist. It's so counterintuitive. And this is only done by those who have been given the Spirit of God. And, and so assess yourself. So the two reasons it gives are that Christ has suffered for us and Christ has left an example. But let me give you one more reason that I think you can do this. And it's not explicit in the text, but it is implicit in the context. In other words, if you remember back in chapter 2, 12, chapter 2, Peter pivots to say, hey, here's how you handle the world. He says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they speak evil against you, which is what's happening here, that they may see your good deeds and they may glorify God on the day of visitation. Your proper behavior, your honorable behavior, your non-retaliation has a redemptive effect. It has an evangelistic effect. It, 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 has, it has an effect that people can be changed by your non-retaliation, but doing good instead of doing what they would expect you to do. And, and you'll even see this next week in chapter 3 when he speaks to the wife who's married to the difficult husband. I know that may, you may feel like that applies to many of you in here. But he does. He speaks to the wife about the difficult husband. And here's what you do. And he talks about her behavior. And he talks about her being good and saying that your husband will be won over by your behavior. That, that, that non-retaliation to evil results often in conversion, that they will glorify God on the day of visitation. And so I, I have asked Vanitha, that's why she's sitting up here, she's not just monitoring me. Um, uh, I've asked Vanitha, and many of you know Vanitha, I think we can testify to God's grace in her life that she has uh, been faithful to God in the midst of of many different challenges and many different struggles and and in many respects much mistreatment and yet she's responded well and so uh, I know some much of her background and I know one story in particular that I asked her to consider sharing with us because I think it testifies 
to the truthfulness and the power of God's word when lived out faithfully that God moves. And so she's going to share this story, and then I will, wow, you're right there. <laughs> you know, I have a bad left eye. That almost scared me. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, <laughs> and it's very, for Vanitha, it's, um, I think she does a great job speaking. She uh, is always a little bit on pins and needles with it. So thank you for doing this. Yeah, yes, thank you. you.